0: the now it's dark movie podcast with me mike and of course tim hey man how's it going
1: it's going pretty well uh, we just kind of wanted to do a, a quick sort of review analysis of a movie that we've both been really impressed by, which is, is hit theaters fairly recently, Ari Aster's second feature film, *Midsummer*.
0: Yeah, I think *Midsummer* has overall been getting some pretty good reviews and people for
1: the most part have been quite happy with it. And I think what's what's great about the film is it's kind of just dominated conversations a lot. People have talked a, a lot about it, even if it is, isn't the biggest film at the box office or, you know, isn't going to win a ton of awards. Much like his first feature, Hereditary, it, you know, Midsummer is kind of capturing a lot of people's imagination and, and getting a lot of people talking. And so I thought it'd be nice to kind of give some thoughts on the movie and also kind of try to delve into what makes Ari Aster such an interesting director because i think he is one of the most interesting new auteurs working today
0: yeah cuz you you liked hereditary right i liked hereditary a lot yeah i i know we are both really fond of hereditary and we both saw midsummer together Right. Uh, Just last week. Right. And we were both really, really happy with how it turned out. Uh, Ari Aster, so far, is a guy whose career I'm really looking forward to. Uh, So let's talk a little bit about what made Midsummer such a success. Fair warning, everybody, we will be spoiling parts of Midsummer. so if you haven't seen it, go check that out and then come back.
1: Well, I I think he's taking a lot of familiar elements, first off. I mean, there's a lot that's taken from the, the kind of folk horror genre, Ari Aster himself is a self-described cinephile, so obviously you're getting, you know, The Wicker Man, but he's also mentioned movies like The Color of Pomegranates and, uh, you know, uh, Modern Romance, the the Albert Brooks kind of breakup movie as, you know, key influences for this. He also drew in a lot of Swedish folklore and, and other traditions. And he has kind of described this as, you know, not only a contribution to the folk horror genre, but also a breakup movie. And he's kind of mixing those two elements together. So you do get a lot of familiar story elements in this movie, a lot of familiar beats. But how you get from one point to another, how the movie unfolds is what really makes it interesting. And I think from start to finish, it's just so captivating. (laughs) Start to finish? Because yeah. they're,
0: I don't know, Scandinavia joke. They're going to Sweden, so you start ah. to finish. <laughs> uh, yeah, there we go. Um, well, yeah, so I, I like that you mentioned that it's a breakup movie because it's, I thought, metaphorically very strong. Um, it's um, Florence Pugh, who's starring as a, a young woman who is kind of going through a rocky time with her boyfriend and then some family tragedy strikes. And so she joins her boyfriend and his buddies mm-hmm. on a trip to a Midsummer Festival out in Sweden yep. and things get incredibly grim and incredibly bleak from there on out. Uh, but yeah, this has been another movie in a decade of some really strong horror movies where the metaphor has been really strong. Taking something that's intangible and turning it into something that is, right? Taking the concept of a breakup and sort of managing to portray
1: it well on screen. He's drawing from his own personal experiences here too. I mean, he was going through a, a breakup prior to writing this film, and I believe he was approached by, you know, Swedish producers or something to make this sort of slasher film set in Sweden. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't really interested in that project initially, but when he kind of found the element of the breakup, when he was going through his own breakup, he was like, oh, okay, that could be an interesting entry point into how to do this film. So he's drawing on his own experiences, uh, not only, you know, having gone through a breakup, but also he has mentioned that his family underwent a num- number of hardships growing up. And so I think he has really keyed into the idea of sort of like family tragedy, uh, trauma and things like that. Whereas Hereditary is more of a, a family tragedy movie. Midsummer picks off with, you know, a a key sort of event, a family tragedy, but then kind of Focuses more on the, the personal and relationship aspect of that, both with Danny's own sort of method of grieving and getting over it, but also her, you know, sort of rocky relationship with her boyfriend Christian, played by Jack Rayner. And so, uh, you know, he he really mixes together a number of key influences in a really cool way, not only his own personal experiences, but mixing that with the Swedish folklore and, you know, like the Maypole and and all those things is really, really cool, really well done. Yeah. And you mentioned the character, Danny, that is the Florence Pugh character.
0: Um, Florence Pugh, as well as Jack Rayner and Will Poulter, who at this point, I think had the... The maybe the most successful career out of the three. He first mm. time I saw him was in The Maze Runner, right? Just uh, some years ago, and then uh, most recently before this, I saw him in in the Bandersnatch movie, the the Black the Black
1: Mirror movie, Bandersnatch. Yeah, he's such a captivating presence. I mean, in this movie, he's he's kind of comic relief, and all of his line deliveries are just kind of so over the top yeah. and ridiculous that it just makes you laugh. And Ari Aster himself you know, balances tones, different sorts of tones really well. Yeah, he does. I mean, he's not afraid to kind of live in awkward, uncomfortable moments. And to have characters say, like, totally ridiculous things in the midst of great trauma or great sort of seriousness. Yeah, I I noticed that
0: Midsummer seemed to have a lot more comedy than, say, something like Hereditary
1: did. Did you notice the same thing? Definitely. Hereditary almost had this, like, Ingmar Bergman-esque sort of seriousness. From start to finish, It's it's got this sort of glacial sort of atmosphere. Yeah, I didn't really notice any humor in Hereditary at all.
0: Not, not at that all. that was a bad thing, but it's not a bad thing that there's humor in, mids- in Midsummer either.
1: I think it just shows that Ari Aster is becoming more adept at balancing things tonally. And he has mentioned, you know, how the influence of Korean cinema, for example, on his filmmaking, where... I think a lot of great Korean films are are sort of based on, you know, tonal transitions. Oh, like yeah, uh yeah. the the Bong Joon-ho movie uh Parasite, which recently came out and won the Palme d'Or at Cannes. That really balances tones well. It it does nicely transition from comedy to more of a drama and kind of goes back and forth between the two. I never felt that it was jarring, though, the tones and no, the shifts in tone. That's what I'm saying. It's, it's yeah. very sort of gradual and, and organic. And I think Ari Aster has drawn from that in a really interesting way. Yeah, gradual being a key word there, too, because
0: um, as as long as these characters are, are going through what they're going through, whether it's in Midsummer or in Hereditary, because it happens in both. Um, Ari Aster so far has been doing really well, I think, at the, the slow burn horror movie. Yes. You might get some kind of big event at the very beginning to, to set things off. And then you don't really get a major payoff until the very end. Yeah. There are definitely scary moments and distressing moments as the movie continues. Um, but really very little. In fact, I would say none at all uh, as far as jump scares are concerned. No, that's and things right. like that, And so he's, he's really doing a lot to build atmosphere, to build tension and dread. Yeah, And I think he really incorporates uh, terror and horror together very well.
1: Yeah, uh, suspense. Yes, yeah, suspense. And that, that feeling of, of just kind of pulling you along, drawing you in. He has said, quote, The joy is not in subverting expectations, but delivering on expectations in a way that's both inevitable and also emotionally surprising. And I think you definitely see that in Midsummer, where, you know, there's a lot of familiar story beats, but you're, you're sucked into the movie because of how, you know, all encompassing the atmosphere is, uh, by, by how sort of compelling the emotional journey of these characters is. Yeah. Um, I, I think,
0: you know, regardless of the, the plot, cause you mentioned all of these, these um, influences mm-hmm. like the wicker man and the color of pomegranates as far as plot is concerned I don't really care that he's borrowing from all sorts of different movies and he's borrowing beats from different movies right because of everything that Ariaster is doing well um, with um, with suspense and tension and the the characters interacting with each other I don't really yeah.
1: care right and he's become really good at just using different cinematic techniques mm-hmm. to sort of pull you in i mean a couple of things that i notice uh he he's really good at using long takes yeah and there's some really awesome long takes in midsummer there's a great scene early on where you know christian danny's boyfriend uh has kind of just told her that he's going to sweden and he's leaving and he's already booked a plane ticket and she kind of, you know, manages to, I guess, convince him or, or he asks her out of politeness or a sense of obligation, like, do you want to come? And she ends up coming, unbeknownst to his friends, who yeah. have kind of planned this trip there, uh, you know, it's supposed to be an all-guys sort of trip, maybe meet some girls or something like that. So that first scene when Danny comes over to to meet uh, Christian's friends and... and Uh, She lets them know that she's coming too. It's incredibly awkward. And, you know, Ari Aster plays this perfectly by having this long take where you see all the characters kind of sitting down. You see uh, Christian and Danny reflected in the mirror. And by just kind of dwelling in this moment, by having this long take where you're just kind of looking at all the characters' faces to kind of see their awkward reactions to this, it really kind of lets the awkwardness of that moment breathe and just kind of you get the full extent of that
0: feeling. That's not the only time that he does that as well because it's a little bit beforehand when you really see Christian and Danny talking perhaps for the first time in the movie where she's standing at the door or at a wall and she's looking at, at Christian um, who's sitting on a sofa beside a mirror as well. Mm-hmm. And so the camera is focused on Danny and you see Christian in the mirror Right. Next to her, and that's another creative way to get both characters in the same shot for for perhaps you know expositional purposes. But mm-hmm. um, it's still it's it's really good to just have a movie that lets the camera sit there while the the characters interact and while the actors act with each other.
1: Well, it, it kind of goes back to that 40s style of filmmaking where the director, instead of cutting everything up and having like, you know, establishing shot, medium shot, close up, they kind of just have one way of approaching things. Mm-hmm. And because they're so confident in their choices and their filmmaking, you know, they use longer takes. They they let the actors act more instead of cutting up their performances so much. And Ari Aster pulls this off very well. Uh, another cool thing that I've noticed he does a lot is these kind of like... Interesting cuts, these interesting edits, where, like, for example, Florence Pugh will walk into a, a the bathroom, and then we cut to her in the bathroom of an airplane on the way to Sweden, where it's it's kind of like a, what would you call that? Like a match cut or a a, a jump cut, match cut, something yeah, like yeah. that, where it it really is disorienting you know, because they're so well done and so kind of like uh, jarring in some ways. Yeah, a little dreamlike in that way and um, you don't
0: really know or remember how you got there. Yes. But, uh, and also just uh, practically a very good way to just move the plot along. Exactly. You know, a very good way to just keep the movie going. Um, so he, along with the the really interesting camera movements and the, the camera, I, I suppose, lack of camera motions because he's not cutting... You know, he's not doing over the shoulder cuts for every single conversation. Um, I found his use of color to be really, really well done. Yeah. The colors he,
1: were, were really stunning in this movie. He said he was trying to get a sort of technical or feel. Um, he mentioned like Powell and Pressburger's Black Narcissus yeah. as a key example, like a, just sort of a, a very vibrant uh, use of color. And he mentioned, he was like, I wanted to get the technicolor look, but I realized if I actually tried to match it exactly, it was going to look weird and out of place. It would look like a movie made in the, the 40s or 50s. Right. He didn't want to go for that full technicolor look. But what he did is he's like, I, I tried to get what technicolor, what I imagined technicolor looked like. So mm-hmm. he's like, for him and the colorist, it was like, close your eyes and just try to imagine what it looks like and then go for the image in your head. Rather than matching that exactly, mm. so it's almost like the memory of Technicolor, rather than the actual, you know, accurate representation of it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I suppose if they went full Technicolor, it might have uh, looked a bit, a bit too much, out of place, a I little think. out of place. Yeah, because, yeah. uh, but yeah, the colors. I st- I still think the colors were perhaps a little bit more muted and mm. uh, desaturated than they would have been for full Technicolor. Definitely.
1: Definitely. And things like skin tones, for example, and, and technicolor they, they leaned, you know, almost towards reddish skin yeah. tones. Whereas this movie's more naturalistic in, in terms of skin tones and things like that. One one thing that I notice about
0: Ariaster cinematography, especially in midsummer, is how he really forces you to watch closely at everything that's on screen yeah yeah just there are so many things that are on screen where there are little details and you can tell that it's going to be that it's that it's foreshadowing things that are going to be showing up later and you definitely want to make sure that you're paying attention to everything um, so that you don't miss out on some detail and I thought that was something that really impressed me as well
1: yeah he, he kind of mentioned some of his influences there is a, a Swedish filmmaker whose name escapes me at the moment right now uh, but it might be Anderson. Oh, for, for some reason I forget his name, but I've seen some of his films and he's really good at just these static shots mm-hmm. where you, you're kind of forced to look into the background and the image has a lot of depth. And I think like any good cinephile, he's, he's, Ari Aster has learned how to balance like static imagery with movement and camera movement. And he, he does that really well. There's a few times in the movie where I kind of, the imagery, the cutting is is very jarring uh, I mean, particularly during one scene where the couple, uh, the old yeah, the couple old couple scene, throws yeah. themselves to their their death, and you just see their their face explode, or especially this this woman's face explode. I mean, that's just so violent and shocking, and you can't help but notice it. But a lot of times, the I, I found the cinematography, the cutting, fairly seamless. It's like I was never really remarking a lot on like, oh, this is a great shot. I was just so invested in the movie. That I, you know, just felt organic. And I think by, you know, doing all this research and combining it with his really vast cinematic knowledge, he's kind of, he he makes this really lived in world. This really organic world where everything that happens kind of feels like it could happen based on the rules of the world he's setting up. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, everything you just mentioned definitely feels a part of that. Uh, Another cool thing worth mentioning, I think, is the use of sound and music in this. Yeah, yeah. Because the the sound editor for this film has talked about how they really subtracted sound in a lot of places and a lot of key moments. Uh, For example, there's a phone conversation between Danny and Christian early on where they just really, it sounds like it's taking place in a vacuum almost. And because that takes place early on in the film, it forces you to pay attention, to listen And it's kind of a great sort of uh, like great directorial choice to kind of make the audience pay attention early on, so that they're kind of prepped to to. Focus on this film to, to be aware of all the the, the minute details are are going to be uh, presented to you.
0: Yeah, silence in movies is something that I think has kind of become a, a largely a lost art. There's yeah. not there's not much use of silence um, in movies, but Ari Aster definitely uses it for Midsummer. Whether it's the the conversations that just become so awkward because of the silence, mm-hmm. and it also helps to push the the metaphor forward of how this is going to be a breakup movie and Hmm. how this is central to uh, a relationship that's faltering when you kind of have a, have a lot of trouble communicating with each other. And, you know, when, when you go for a seven day feast or a nine day feast, you know, with, with the image of feasting, what do you typically think of?
1: Oh, you think of like food, people talking. Yeah. uh, There's a lot of sounds. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Revelry, but uh, they're eating a lot of their meals and, Total silence, and the only thing that you're hearing is just the silverware against the plates.
1: Well, they they set it up in a great way where they have to wait for the kind of head of the table to pick up their knife and fork and start eating. Yeah, and then like you know, people just going down the line of the table, people consecutively pick up their knives and forks, and it's very synchronized in a way that's it can only seem creepy after a while. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because I was watching
0: that, wondering if that was my imagination, mm, if if because right. it, it did kind of look like a this sort of domino effect where everyone was just picking up their knife and fork one after the other
1: but yeah you so yeah it wasn't my imagination no not (laughs) at all it's very well sort of choreographed and a great detail that kind of just makes you think like these people have worked this out very well yeah they were very familiar with each other to an almost creepy
0: extent i suppose because this is a festival that takes place every 90 years yeah you got to do it right
1: Right, right, right. You don't want to be that one generation that botches it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Another cool thing they do is take away noises that you would kind of expect in an idyllic sort of rural place like this. Uh-huh. I mean, like in you know the Swedish countryside, you'd expect to hear bugs and birds and animal noises. and Children laughing. Summer sounds, yeah. you know. And they a lot of times take those away so that you're forced to focus on just the dialogue. I mean, there's a scene where... The, the sort of female leader of the celebration, uh, starts talking, and it's so silent. Like, her her voice seems to be, again, kind of just ringing out in a vacuum. And it's it's really jarring to hear that use of silence. Uh, also, the the kind of mix of diegetic and non-diegetic music and sounds. Uh, there are times where you hear music... You assume it's non diegetic and then the camera kind of pans over and it's like, oh, there are people playing instruments. This yeah. is actually this is actually diegetic, I guess. Uh and when they do use non-diegetic sounds and soundscapes, they use them kind of like uh Alan Splett, David Lynch's sound designer used them, where it's like these sound like things that could be happening in the scene, but they're actually not. They're uh-huh. kind of exaggerated. Uh for example, there's a. Uh, a lot of use of just kind of isolated little sounds as opposed to sort of ambient diegetic sounds. For example, when people are, uh, you know, talking in the commune, you'd expect to hear maybe like, you know, general, an ambient layer of just people laughing or people talking or something like that. But in this uh, sound design, they actually will just have like an isolated track of somebody hammering something. Or an isolated track of somebody, you know, like uh, raking up uh, hay or something like that. Sure, sure. Just
0: like one, one type of sound. Yeah, and just like
1: one person working. Yeah. So you kind of get this sense of like, there's not just a general communal feel, but there's one guy somewhere back there watching, or there's some guy hammering back there. It's very, it makes it both more synchronized in the fact of like, okay, there's there's one guy working here on something or there's two guys working on this thing. But it also kind of, it's, it's creepier because you can't be lost in the general details of a community, but you kind of get the sense of like there's one other person off screen watching you right now. Right, like they're being spied on. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure all of this must play... Some
0: part in some way of kind of playing with your mind in ways that you don't even realize yes. while you're watching the movie, right? I guess this is um, this is when you when I talk about terror and, and horror and you mentioned the word suspense, this must all come in even if you don't fully realize it when when you're watching. But this really adds to that feeling of dread and to the feeling
1: that something just isn't right. When Ari Aster is mentioned on Hereditary, and I imagine on this film too, where he will put in sounds that are almost inaudible yeah. that you feel more than you hear, like really low rumbles and things like that. That kind of probably just harken back to, you know, being stalked by a predator. You know, where it's just you hear this rumbling sound or you feel this rumbling sound, and it's like, okay, that's not good. Mm-hmm. You know, like something is pursuing me right now. And all those, you know, interesting uses of of sound adds so much to this film. And I think that combined with the the cinematic techniques of the long takes and these interesting little uh you know jump cuts and stuff like that. Also, I mean there's a great shot early on when they're they're driving into uh, kind of a fictional Swedish place called Harga. And when they're driving into there, the camera just, you know, turns 180 degrees upside down mm-hmm. where you're you're kind of driving along this road, but the image is, is flipped over. And it was just such a cool, but very unsettling sort of camera trick that he does there. And and the movie is full of, of those things where it's like, okay, I know what sort of place they're going to. I kind of have an idea of what's going to happen. But this journey is so unexpected, the way it's being told, the way it's being presented. that it's like, I'm just kind of sucked into this. It's, it's like, I want to experience this on an aesthetic level, on a visceral level, even if I know intellectually what's going to happen next.
0: Yeah. And that's that's sort of what I mean by with what Ariaster is doing really well. I don't care that it's that it shares some beats or it shares some events with things like The Wicker Man and other and other horror movies. Right. Because yeah. Ariaster is certainly not the first artist. Or director, nor will he be the last who takes, who borrows, who steals from books that he's read, movies that he's watched, et cetera, et cetera. Not not by a long shot.
1: Yeah, and another thing worth mentioning too, I mean it's only a second feature. He's done a, a number of shorts, uh, including I think it's called The Strange Thing About the Johnsons, which uh-huh. is just such an outrageous, really like it's it's available. You can check it out. And just the the premise of that movie about a, you know, a guy who's in love with his father. I mean, like really seriously in love with him. Yeah. Is so over the top and ridiculous and just kind of like, oof, like you're you're cringing the whole time, but you can't look away. These movies are kind of it's familiar territory in terms of genre conventions and, you know, plot points. But it's because it's only a second feature film, you know, I expect him to go farther with, with creating new kind of genre conventions or exploring new types of stories in, you know, using his familiar kind of uh, cinematic tricks that he builds up. H- his way of shooting, his style, you know, grafted onto a new type of story is something that I, I expect to see from him maybe, you know, with his fifth feature film sure. or his tenth feature film. And, you know, given the pace he's been working at, he seems to have a very promising future ahead. Yeah. I
0: was very impressed with not only the quality of Midsummer, but the speed at which he made it. I mean, Hereditary came out in the spring of last year. Right. Right. So just really impressive turnaround and a. A, a real part of where I feel like Jordan Peele failed with us. Yeah. Because I think he took several years to write get out. Yeah. Which is why it was so good. But then with that quick turnaround with us, uh, I know it fell flat for both you and me.
1: Yeah. Despite having some amazing sequences, like I, I think the opening sequence of us is one of the best things that was shot. Uh, yeah, yeah, the this part year. of the carnival, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The
0: part of the carnival. Um, but what what I'm sort of looking forward to with Ari Aster is I really like what he w- certain tropes and certain themes that that he has and certain tricks that he uses. And something that I remarked on while watching Midsummer is that with his second movie, you can kind of start to see trademarks you can mm. sort of start to see signature styles and signature shots and things like that um, but things like um, grief and the really animalistic way in which he portrays grief yeah. the sort of wailing and the distressing noises that people make right when they are in deep heavy grief you he use it in hereditary he used it again in midsummer if he uses it again in his third movie
1: it's going to be maybe overdoing and it. it's going to lose the effect well, he has stated that he his next movie will probably not be a horror movie. He wants to make maybe a comedy or a melodrama or something mm-hmm. like that. I would I would hope he tries his hand at comedy, especially after uh,
0: that short film that you talked about. That oh, can the be, strange
1: thing about the Johnsons. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. That can be if it's especially if he's good at sort of um, I don't know British style cringe humor.
1: <laughs> well, he's got a real he, he's he's got a real dark sense of humor, but he's also really not afraid to mix you know humor with sort of serious moments and serious drama. So I think he could pull it off very well. I think, you know, given that The Strange Thing About the Johnsons was made at a pretty young age, I think it came out at like 2011. Uh-huh. This is thesis film for the American Film Institute. Given that it was made a long time ago, I think he can make something, you know, much better on a feature film level, but with that same, you know, dark humor that he brought to that film. And yeah. that same sort of like cringe, you know, but can't look away sort of factor that he brought to that film. So, I mean, I think he could pull it off. And I think he could become like a a real auteur that, that can, you know, make great films in many genres. But for now, he's only
0: done two horror movies.
1: And uh, we are looking
0: forward to another horror movie by Robert Eggers as well. When he comes out with The Lighthouse, that will be his second feature. Yeah, After in, the Witch. After the Witch, which... <laughs> after the witch <laughs> comma which so far i think is in my top 10 for the decade which is a list mm. i'm starting to think about right by the way because you know we are coming towards the end of the decade mm-hmm. 2010 to 2019 and so i'm starting to think of decade top 10s i would put the witch in there i think i'll put hereditary on there but as far as a top of the year I th- i'd say midsummer makes my list and i would be very surprised if anything knocks it out of the the top ten for my year.
1: Oh, me too. Uh, everything about this movie is interesting. the The performances, especially Florence Pugh, I- is fantastic. Uh, just Ari Aster's direction is great. The music, this the sound, uh, the score done by Bobby Krillick, mm-hmm. who's uh, otherwise known as the the Haxan Cloak, I believe, yeah. is his uh, his band name or, or artist's name. His score is really good and it's just got such an interesting mix of like terrifying, like shrieking strings and yeah. atonality mixed with like really beautiful sort of romantic cues as well. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, fantastic score once again. Hereditary also had a great score and soundtrack as well. I'm really looking forward to what Ari Aster can bring to
0: the table for his following movies and I know that you are as well, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I can't yeah. wait to see what he does next and... Uh, I think as long as he's sort of exploring, you know, what you can do with cinematic techniques. Yeah. Even if he does make, you know, movies that follow more conventional genre uh, conventions or or makes things that are very much familiar in terms of story, it's still going to be interesting. Definitely a
0: career that's going to be well worth watching.
1: Right. Well, there you go. Midsummer. Go see it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, check it out, and uh, thanks for listening to our thoughts, analysis, and stay tuned for more.